When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We weren't the only Black Muslim family at the masjid, but we were one of few. And I've always had an ear for language. So if I'm listening to Urdu, I'm going to speak the Urdu. You know, if I'm listening to Arabic, I'm going to speak the Arabic. And so a lot of the aunties, I would talk to them and they would look at me like I was crazy. Like, how do you know our language? But I'm just listening to what they're saying and picking up on it. Hi, I'm Alia Habib and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Alia Ali Habib. Ali is many things. She's a writer, an actor, a producer, a teacher. She's got film and play credits and She's Black and she's a Muslim. And I had so much fun with this conversation, Sharon, but you have to explain how we know Ali. Yeah. So I had so much fun too. And I've known Ali for since 2011, which is, wow, so uh, over We're 10 old. years. We're old. We are old. <laughs> when I say that out loud, it's funny. I'm like, yeah, we just met two years ago, but no, it's been a decade. She and my husband were in the same graduate theater program together. And their program was really small. It was only about 14 students. And so everyone got to know each other super well. They were all, you know, on campus for three straight years together. And so it was, it's interesting because I saw her transform during that time period. And since then she's had other transformations, one of which is her changing her name slightly. So I've known her as Aliyah and she talks about this a lot in our conversation. She's now known as Ali or Alia. So she's really come into her own in the last 10 years. And I've never actually taken the time to sit down and get to know her the way that we did today. So I'm very glad, Raman, that you were so enthusiastic about having her on. And I'm glad we did it because I think you guys are all going to really enjoy our conversation with Ali and also be inspired by the work that she's doing today in the theater and in the playwriting world. Yeah. So get ready for a great conversation about not just being Black, not just being Muslim, but being yourself and being American. We, we hope you enjoy our conversation with our new friend, Ali. Ali, it's so great to have you on the show. I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. I love you guys. I love you too. So we ask all of our guests this and we get such different answers. Where are you from? So I'm from a lot of places. And somebody said that if you've lived in a place for 10 years, that's where you're from. Which 10 years? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> the most recent one? The first 10 years? The most recent 10 years. The most recent 10 years. I'm from Newark, New Jersey, okay? Uh, Newark stands up. But I was raised in Ohio, and I spent seven years in Pittsburgh. And I was born in Woodstock, New York. So there you go. So like upstate New York, progressive hippie, from the Midwest, <laughs> who bounces around the coast. All over. Just <laughs> Pretty all much. Over. And now I live in LA. So all over. All right, all right. But I got to ask, your name doesn't sound like <laughs> your like name doesn't match your face. Yeah, yeah. Habib, come on. Yeah. So I am, I guess you could call me Muslim royalty. So my grandfather, his family is Muslim. Yeah, is Muslim. And they actually founded one of the first Islamic communities in North America, and their roots are from Algeria. There's a farm like in upstate New York that the family still owns and lives on. And my grandmother 
was she just recently passed away, but she was Christian. She was from Mobile, Alabama originally, but she lived in Buffalo and spent her final years in Houston, Texas. So I am both an African American, I guess you could say, <laughs> and a a person from the enslaved African people, a descendant of the enslaved African. I, I guess what as as an identity as a little girl growing up in Ohio or in Pittsburgh, like did you identify first as black, as African, literally African American, or as Muslim? And if why one or the other or all of the above? So I definitely never identified as African. I identified as Black, but before anything Muslim. We were raised in a very conservative Muslim household. And before anything else, in our hearts, in my heart, I'm Muslim, but the first appearance of me is Black. So you can't take it off of me. It's inextricable. So obviously people are going to see me as a Black woman, just as they saw me as a Black girl. So there's no way I can move in the world without that having some type of impact on my ideology. My, what am I trying to say? Ideology. <laughs> <My> ideology. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was well, going to so, add another ology on there. <laughs> <laughs> finish my coffee. When you, uh, so I was brown and Hindu, but I mm-hmm. identified more as being brown and Indian, right? More than Hindu. Hindu was just a thing I did on the weekends or every other weekend at the temple. But mm-hmm. like, I, my assumption is since it sounds like you had a lot of religion in your household, if you were going to mosque, were you going to mosque with other Algerians? Was it a communal no. mosque of all Muslims of all colors? Like- so it it was the latter. So I'm from Kent, Ohio originally. And even though that is a very quaint little town in a quiet <laughs> village, it was also very white. And so for part of my day, I was one of the only Black kids in all-white school or in the gifted program. But then at night when we go to the masjid for dinners or the kutbah or whatever, I was in a very multicultural environment. I spent my days with Muslims from all over the world, from Pakistan, from Iran, from Jordan, Palestine, Egypt, literally all over the globe. And so I had a very culturally rich upbringing. Mm -hmm. So... I appreciate people from all walks of life because that's really all I ever knew. And they were, and you were gathering with them where exactly? What did you say? At the, at the mosque, at the mosque. At the the mosque. Yeah. I didn't realize it was so diverse. I just, I don't know. I have like a vision of Ohio as a state in general. I know it's terrible, right? (laughs) (laughs) But like, I didn't, I didn't even know that there would be enclaves like that or like communities that were so diverse and different. Why that area? Like what, what was happening in Kent that, that drew and attracted so many Muslims there? Well, I can't really tell you. I know that for the most part, when people immigrate, a lot of the places that they come to are the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And so Kent specifically, I know that all of those people didn't live in Kent. So there were different Islamic centers in different areas. Kent was one of the, I hate to say like better ones, but just more Mm -hmm. accessible. Yeah. Well, it's a university town. Right. It's a university town. It had like better facilities, things like Mm -hmm. that. And so the people who would come to Kent, they lived in like Cleveland or Akron or Youngstown. They would live in other places, but come to the Masjid until they built the bigger one, which is this gorgeous facility out in Stowe or Mm -hmm. Streetsboro. But yeah, it was actually like very small, but it was a close knit Islamic community and we loved each other very much. So I never really... Even though I knew I was Black, I knew I was human more than right. anything. Like I always mm-hmm. saw people for who they were and my Blackness never... Looking back on it, I know that there were instances that happened, mm-hmm. but I, I just felt protected and excluded from a lot of those things. That's beautiful. Well, what's interesting is Indians, oh my gosh, like you can cut it by region, by caste, like just so much stuff. But in Alabama... Growing up, there were like 15 Indian families. Now there are hundreds of them in the Mm -hmm. town I grew up in. And we rented out a Unitarian church every other weekend. 
and all the Indians came together, whether you were Gujarati, Punjabi. And I didn't actually understand all of those, to your point. I actually didn't know the difference between a Gujarati and a Punjabi till I was like 19. Yeah. Because in Montgomery, we just all came together for Temple or for Diwali or for skits and sketches and stuff like that. And so I guess at this, and that's the beautiful thing about religion, like is that it pulls people together. If you are of the faith, be it Islam, Christianity, it doesn't matter what your color is. The faith comes first. The culture comes first. But you said there were some instances. Were those instances within the community or were they just the broader? Oh, absolutely. They were absolutely in the community and, Mm -hmm. and also in, you know, the white community too. Say more. Yeah. There's some things that you don't really, you can't articulate as a kid. Like you just Mm -hmm. feel that shift and you're like, that was weird. But then there are some things that stick out, like for example, and racism is a big thing in the Islamic community. Like, yes, even though I grew up very multi-culti, again, looking back, there are things where I'm like, hmm, that's odd. Like this girl who told me that I wasn't really a Muslim because I was black. Mm, Wow. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Like that doesn't make any sense. I know more Quran than you. (laughs) Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Like, how am I not a Muslim? But that was- Or even like my entire family, right? It's like- Right. Yeah. My country is 99 point, my country of origin is 99.9% Muslim. Right. Yeah. But because we weren't the only- black Muslim family at the masjid, mm-hmm. but we were one of few. And yep. so I, I've i always had an ear for language. And mm-hmm. again, like I grew up in this community. So if I'm listening to Urdu, I'm going to speak the Urdu. Mm-hmm. If I'm listening to Arabic, I'm going to speak the Arabic. And so a lot of the aunties in like the Arab culture and the Indian culture, <laughs> they I would talk to them and they would look at me like I was not like a demon, but like I was crazy. A space alien. Space alien. Yeah. Right. Like, alien. How, do you, how do you know our language? You know, but I'm just <laughs> listening to what they're saying and picking up on it. And it's still very much the same. And so this was the same girl, but I spent the night. She also had a big family. They were one of eight as well. I have to, I have to ask ethnically, what was she? She's Arab. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's Arab. So I spent the night and, and again, like all the families hung out so the kids were hanging out with each other like there was no the dinner party sleepover circuit right exactly right and so i stayed the night over there and they're all speaking arabic it's the next morning and the mom said something about the black girl but she said it in arabic and i turned and i was like why would you say that because she's saying it in the secret language right 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 and she was she just looked like (gasps) Like, how do you know? Like, how did you? And I'm like, yeah. I can understand you. And so there are these like little things that looking back, obviously in the moment I felt it too, but like, I never saw myself as black. Like, even though I knew I was black, like I've always seen myself as a human. Like, who are you people that think that just because a person is a different color that they're somehow less than, or it's even now, like somebody will be like, oh, you're Muslim. Well, mm. prove it. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, what wow. do you want me to do? I I was actually doing a show once in the Midwest. It was in, and it was in one of those communities that were, it was a Somali kid who said this to me, but it was in uh, Minneapolis. And the show was a uh, hijab tube and it was just basically a woman coming, <laughs> right. It was a woman coming Sorry. to terms. <laughs> it was a woman coming to terms with like whether or not she wanted to wear the hijab and making like YouTube videos about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it was a very educational thing on Islam. And so it was going around to different schools because there's a huge Somali population in Mm -hmm. Minneapolis. So Mm -hmm. it was mainly to educate these different communities about Islam and the the Somali people, right? And so this kid, there was a QA and a afterwards and this kid goes, so you're Muslim? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, recite Ayatul Kursi. And I was like, what? And he's like, if you're Muslim, prove it. And I said, I don't ever have to prove anything to you. And like, obviously this is an eighth grader, but like he has this mentality because so many other people have this mentality. And like looking at us, he's black too, but he sees himself as like, oh, I'm a real Muslim. It goes back to that real Muslim thing, right? Like I'm a real Muslim because I grew up in this culture that was all Muslim. And it's like, so did I. (laughs) 
Yeah. Wait, so Very he was black. So. I still, I, I actually am not understanding. So he was black. Yeah, he's, he's a black Somali kid. And because but because I'm American, American, because I'm a black oh, American. Got it. So there's this thing about like black Americans, like, oh, well, were you born or did you convert? Hmm. Yeah. I feel like every ethnicity and every religion has that. It's not quite orthodoxy, but be it the the beef between like Caribbean Americans and African Americans and Black Americans, the beef between Daisies and yeah. ABCDs or Chinese and ABCs, like there's this, oh, you're not enough. And it's humorous, especially when it comes to religion. Of all the world religions, two are very much about growing the pie, <laughs> Christianity mm-hmm. and Islam. And right. hey, full credit to what you want to do to spread the word. But <laughs> it's right. like- you're missing the point if you're trying to other this woman who clearly is part of your faith. Like, right. don't be exclusionary, be inclusionary. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. it's not the mission of the faith almost. No, absolutely. And, but you'll deal with a lot of that, especially yeah. being a black woman and when you, or a black person, when you move in circles that aren't, mm-hmm. well, I think now today the conversation is changing, right? Because we're more openly talking about the race, the racism at large, but especially in communities, as you said, that are supposed to be rooted in faith, right? We can't act like racism doesn't exist when you don't want me, a black Muslim woman, marrying your Arab son, right? Because I'm yeah. black. Right. We can't act like because I'm black or because, yeah, because I'm black, I, I can't marry your Indian son. Like, mm-hmm. oh, there's something like wrong with me because I'm black. Like, no, there's something wrong with you. Your heart is yeah. black. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. Yeah. yeah. So it's... I, I have to dig a little bit more, Ali. And I, I, I speak from a place yeah. of like, I've experienced this, right? I'm happily married with kids now. And I'm an atheist and my wife is Catholic, but I was raised Hindu. I identified with it, which led to agnosticism and atheism. But I dated a lot of Christian girls. I dated a handful of Hindu girls. And my faith or lack thereof was always an issue. Mm-hmm. And it's it was a very troubling thing. So I say that I, I asked this question having been there from one side. Yeah, <laughs> It sounds like you've had some of that drama in your life as well. Well, for sure. Again, you being a black person operating in this world, your blackness is always going to be a factor, even if people mm-hmm. want to tell you that it's not mm-hmm. just like you being brown or you being Chinese, Sharon, yeah. like yeah. it's always going to be a factor and nobody can tell you because you are experiencing that thing that it's not right. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, definitely it's been an issue. Like, and it, again, it, it, it's funny because people will say, well, oh, it's because it's not because you're black. It's because you don't wear hijab or you don't practice. And it's like your son is out at the club every <laughs> Friday night. <laughs> what do you mean? I don't wear hijab. Like there, there, there's like a boy girl double standard going right, on. Too. For right. sure. For sure. For sure. But there's also I feel like this idea that will even. So like, let's take the Arab community, for example, like, well, this girl is, she's clearly Arab. She doesn't wear hijab, but she can easily identify more as a Muslim than I can. Right? Like, Mm -hmm. why? Because she's Arab. Well, because, well, she knows that her family is from Palestine or Jordan Mm -hmm. or wherever. Mm -hmm. Like, well, she's Arab, so she's rooted in the culture. It's like, yeah, but I'm rooted in the culture of Islam. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So like my Americanness, I'm I'm very Muslim, but I'm also very American because I feel like I've had to identify with my American culture as much as I've had to identify with my Islamic culture. Like because my roots are American. Like I'm from America. My people are from America. They were brought over here forcefully. So like this is where I'm from from. The African American experience is really the blueprint for all of the other black experiences like everybody looks at black culture as this monolith yeah and it's it's not it's not Mm -mm. we're so so different well even islam any of these things being indian being chinese i was literally on another podcast and we're talking about what does it mean to be asian american that's such a catch-all term Mm -hmm. and uh, none of us are these monoliths for many right. of these communities, I, th- I think there are some cultural similarities, like broad swaths. So it's like, okay, so we both take our shoes off <laughs> right. or right. we celebrate Eid or we might choose or acknowledge that our people in our culture are fasting during a period of the year. Right. But there's so many layers beyond that. 
Yeah. And I think also it makes a difference when you have the knowledge of like where your people come from. Like I could take one of those African ancestry DNA tests and be like, oh, like my, I'm whatever, 73% from the West coast of Africa or whatever. But I think when you can say like, oh, my grandmother is from Ghana or Mm -hmm. my mother is from Ghana but I was born here. Would you have that knowledge of otherworldliness, whether or not you were born here? I think it has an impact on your worldview because you still have this idea of other of outside cultures of the world at large. So you're able to think bigger and have these broader ideas. Whereas a lot of African Americans they don't know where they come from. So there is this feeling of not knowing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just not knowing your identity, not knowing who you are at your core. And so I feel like that's why for my parents, it was really important to instill Islam in us and like have that be our foundation, but also our blackness as a foundation. One of my first publicity moments, I was four months old at a African-American heritage festival in Poughkeepsie. And I was in the, I think it was like the Poughkeepsie Times or something. And it's a picture of me and my dad. I was four months old and he's reading the Quran and I'm laying on his lap, reading it upside down. (laughs) And it's like four month old Alia Habib reads the Quran the hard way through the cover (laughs) and upside down. Well, technically it's printed from right to left. So that might've helped. (laughs) Right, right. But so like, my earliest, earliest memories are being Black and being Muslim. So it's just, it's always going to be who I am and how I move through the world. Have you ever felt like you had to fit in? Either like before, or even when I think about who you are today too, in the entertainment world, like what are ways that you've had to shift or change? Well, I think... When I was little, people always thought that I was trying to be white because I spoke proper, but it had nothing to do with whiteness and everything to do with my parents (laughs) being like, you need to articulate. We ain't ain't going to have no ain'ts in our house. Ain't going to be no ain'ts. So people thought that I was conforming, but I was conforming to the will of my parents more than anything. But I think that was because they saw how the world treated Black people. Mm. But I think also I've had to, I won't say I've had to conform, but even my name, right? So my name is properly pronounced as Alia. Alia, Mm -hmm. if you want to get like real with it. But Mm -hmm. we say in in the broad American, right? right, We say Alia, but even in my household, we say Alia. But Mm -hmm. at the masjid, I was always Alia. So even from the time I was little, I was always Alia at the mosque and Alia at home or at school. Mm-hmm. And a friend, a director friend passed away in 2017. And again, this is always how I've identified like at every, even in Pittsburgh, like my friends called me Alia. I was always Alia in my Muslim circles. I am Alia in my Muslim circles, right? So, but in 2017, one of my I was doing a show, Surely Goodness and Mercy, at Newark Symphony Hall. And the director, who is the reason why I moved to Newark, actually, he was working on a show with my partner at the time, and he told us to come to Newark. It's going to be the happening place, blah, blah, blah. So we moved there, and in 2017, he was directing me in a play, and he just, it was so sudden. He called out of rehearsal one day, and literally a week later, he was dead. Whoa. And it was the most like, still like even thinking about it, it gives me chills. It was the most just immediate, shocking. I had no idea. Like I thought it was a joke. Like obviously it wasn't Mm -hmm. a joke, but I was just like, what's going on? Like he's, this is so unlike him. Like why would he call out of rehearsal? It just, the whole thing was very strange. And then I get a, a text to come over to his house and it was basically his like 
farewell, his final goodbyes to everybody. He had contracted this crazy infection and it just caused his brain to deteriorate so fast. And he didn't even like, it happened in a week, right? Like in one week, he just went from like walking around to completely incapacitated. And it was a very intense time because the show still had to go on, right? Like we were still working. And anyways, I ended up catching an Uber somewhere and the Uber driver was this Arab man. And he he asked me my name when I got in the car and I'm just like, Aliyah. And he's like, what? And I was like, what? And he's like, that's not your name. Hmm. And I was like, yeah, it is. And he's like, no, your name is Alia. And I was like, he totally uncled you. He he did. He hella uncled me. (laughs) He knew too, right? And I'm like, how does he know? It is. No, it is. Right. (laughs) Right. But the funny thing was, I had I had just been asking God for like confirmation for a sign for like Mm. just like my direction because again, like it was so impactful, like what happened, and to see the way that the whole city of Newark shut down for this man for his funeral. He had his mm. funeral in NJ Pack. Mm-hmm. Like that's how big wow. it that's was. Huge. That's how many people turned up, right? Like yeah. it was insane. And so it just it it really stung. It really stung. And so I'd just been asking God, like, just give me some type of like I, I have to make a change, right? Like something in me has to shift. And I didn't know what it was, but it was in that moment when he God was like, sent you an uncle. He sent me yeah. my he, uncle. He sent you an Uber. He sent you an Uber. <laughs> <laughs> so Uncle Uber is like, he's like, that's not your name. Your name's Alia. And I was like, well, I know. And he's like, well, then how come you don't say it like that? Hmm. And it just made me think, like, why don't I? Like, why am I, even though my family calls me Aaliyah, even though they know the proper pronunciation and, like, when they're trying to be proper or funny, they'll Mm -hmm. say it right, right? But how come we don't just say it right? Mm -hmm. And so it was just a real moment of, like, I I do need to own who I am. And Ali, Aaliyah is the female version of the name, but the name is Ali, is one of the 99 names of God. So if God is calling himself, herself, Ali, Alia, why am I not, right? Like mm-hmm. my name is one of the names of God. So who am I to mispronounce God, <laughs> right? Essentially, <laughs> that was my thinking. And so that was when in 2017, and, and, I made- And to, and to let other people- Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so in 2017, I sent my family this long email that was said that basically said, I don't know the full plan that God has for me, but I know that he has a plan and this is part of it. So from here on out, I need you guys to call me by the proper pronunciation of my name. And then I made that choice professionally too. And I can tell you it hasn't gone over well, <laughs> both on the family side and the profession. A lot of people. What's the pushback? Int- yeah, what's the pushback? Exactly. It, it's been interesting because a lot of people feel ownership over who you are, huh. who over who they know you to be rather, right? And so when you decide to make a change, then it forces them to question who they are. And some people don't want to question who they are. But in me doing so, I'm not. I'm not asking you, right? I'm not asking you to question who you are. I'm just asking you to call me by how I want to be called. And it Mm -hmm. is a form of respect. But at the same time, I can appreciate, like my parents have called me this name my entire life. So it's going to be an adjustment, but I'm going to keep reminding you and it's going to keep being uncomfortable until you get so annoyed with it that you either don't talk to me or you call me by the name that I want to be called. And in a lot of my relation, my best friend literally stopped talking to me. Wow. It's what's so interesting about that is like, it's uh, not to derail us, but that exact argument you made, I just read one of the banned books, this banned book called gender queer. 
and it's really unpacks the pronoun thing a little bit more by the by the author it's a banned book in texas and blah 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 Mm -hmm. but it's the the exact argument you made minus the religious elements of it are the pronoun identification thing it's like i know you've called me by this my whole life but this is who i am yeah to understand that and it's just there's such a such an interesting through line to that idea of identity right yeah and And in this case in particular but like to me as someone who knew you as Aaliyah right. and now you're Alia, it's it's just a small inflection in tone, right? Exactly. It's not even like you're saying <laughs> Yeah. You're not like call me Apple. And like if right. you had done that, I'd be like, Okay, gotta question a little bit where she came up with this, like what's Moon going on in her life. Apple, right. <laughs> right. Like we're just all we're doing is we're we're literally just putting more of an enunciation or like um a little more focus on one part of the word. It's that's fascinating. Ollie. Yeah. Yeah, it's been very interesting. And, and my nickname growing up has been Ali, Ali Bumaye. It's the it's Muhammad Ali's chant mm-hmm. from the rumble in the jungle, Ali Bumaye. Mm-hmm. But that was always my nickname. So they can Which say- is awesome, by the way. It's not that hard. <laughs> yeah. Things, right? Right. Like people can say it. It's just, again, their idea over who they see you as versus who right. you are. And I've just, I've, sadly lost a lot of people along the way of becoming me, but I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm not going to say like, oh, it's okay because it's not okay. And like, yeah, it was okay because I allowed that before, but how are you going to sit here and tell me that I'm not allowed to tell you what to call me? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, because for whatever reason as well, I, I really empathize with this. So I have a gimmick as well with my ramen, like rum and coke. But growing up, I let so many people with Southern accents go by ramen. And mm. I didn't – look, I didn't want to correct people. All I wanted to do was fit in as a kid. I got humiliated when my dad would stand up at assembly and it's ramen. Say, he would tell the teacher to say it correctly and mm-hmm. I'd be embarrassed. You just want to fit in as a kid. So right. I let it happen to me. And then when I decided to take ownership of the name, it, it was tricky. And actually, yeah. the, what was really endearing though on the flip side is I had a lot of friends – some people mm-hmm. listen to this pod now, who they actually felt they were actually mad at me. They're like, why did you let me mispronounce your name all those years? I did never yeah. knew. And they never knew because I never told them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, no, I've definitely had that too. There there are some people like a few, it, was, it actually started in grad school, I guess, because that was the first time I introduced myself as both. It was actually on my first day. And I remember one of my classmates was like, oh, do you mind if I call you Alia? And he was, because I said, what I said was, my name's Aaliyah, but it's actually pronounced Alia, but nobody says it like that. And it was exactly, that's, that's pretty much verbatim what I said. Yeah. And he was like, oh, well, do you mind if I call you Alia? I was like, no, I would love it. And so he's always called me Alia. And so I think that was actually, I just thought about that moment, but that was one of the first times that I had the thought to even say it in introducing myself. Yeah. What did your... What did your parents think you would be when you were growing up? Or what did they want you to be when you were growing up? (laughs) So it's funny because I actually got my start singing in a talent show. And all of my productions that I did up until high school were in musicals. And so they knew I was always going to be an entertainer. And again, I come from a big family. So we were always putting on a show. We didn't have cable. We didn't. And if we were bored, we had to read a book or do something. So we were always entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) We were always entertaining ourselves and each other. So pre-internet life. Exactly. So I told my parents since I was five, since I sang the little mermaid on central elementary school stage, that that was what I wanted to do forever. So they've known this, but I was actually bred. I think I was. I think they were grooming me to be a politician, to be perfectly honest. And that's what they wanted me to do. They wanted me to go into law, and that was actually my trajectory until I made a shift. I decided to go into criminal justice. Well, it's essentially the same thing, but instead of being a lawyer, just focus more on the criminal justice aspect of it. And that was what I got my degree in, administration of justice with a concentration in forensic science. And that was pretty much where my focus was. I was going to be probably a forensic analyst. And then I graduated my parents were so happy. They were <laughs> so freaking happy. Yeah, man. yeah. I walked across my graduation stage at Pitt, and I just felt so empty. Like mm. all of this was for nothing. Yeah, I'm not happy. They're like, 
my parents were crying. I hated every, the every single moment of that day. It just wow. felt like an, such an empty, like shallow victory. And I know I say that from like a place of privilege, like I got an education, blah, blah, blah. But it it was so hard to do something that I knew wasn't aligned with what I really wanted out of life. Yeah. And so that was when I made the decision. I said, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do or how I'm going to do it, but I can't live my life for everybody else. Like I got my degree for my parents. Now from this moment on, everything else is going to be for me. So I got a job at Pitt um, in the graduate school of business, shout out cats. And (laughs) no, I love them. They were such a great place to work and they wanted me to get my MBA there. And looking back on it, I definitely should have because it was free 99, but I had other goals. And actually while I was studying at Pitt, theater was my minor. And one of my mentors was Dr. Lily. She was the head of Kuntu Repertory Theater, which was a Black theater company affiliated with the university, but they weren't directly linked to the university. They were just on campus. And so she got me, during my whole time at Pitt, I was linked with them. And she got me into the Pittsburgh playwrights scene, like just the Black theater scene in Pittsburgh, which was huge because August Wilson. Mm -hmm. And so that was where I went to National Black Theater Festival. I think that was in like 2005 or 2006. And for the first time, it opened my eyes up to this idea that I could have a career as an artist. And so I had always, like, since that day, I planted that seed and I was like, okay, this is such a beautiful thing. And like, I met so many people, like doing so many different things in theater and they were all black. And I was just like, wow, this is something my parents told me growing up. Like, it's not a real career. Like, oh, that's fun. They always thought I was going to grow out of it. And then they thought I really did because I got my degree in something else. (laughs) So I asked Dr. Lily, I said, I'm thinking about going to grad school. Um, I know nothing about any of the acting programs because though theater was my minor, I couldn't do any of the shows at Pitt because none of them were paid. And I worked full time all throughout undergrad and all throughout grad school. So if it wasn't making me no money and it didn't work around my schedule, like I couldn't do it. So anyways, I asked her, I said, I don't know anything about any theater acting program or whatever. Can you point me in the right direction? So she gave me a couple different schools, but Rutgers was my number one because Israel Hicks had, who has since passed away, but he had directed all of August Wilson's plays. Mm -hmm. He's still, I think, the only director who has directed all of the plays. And you you say August Wilson, director, he's going to be my mentor. He's the head artistic director of the program. Like I'm going there. Right. (laughs) So, and they were my number one. So I only applied to two schools. It was Rutgers and UCSD. Because I said, well, if I don't get into Rutgers, I at least want to be on the West Coast in the sunshine. So um, obviously San Diego. Yeah. Great rationale. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) as fate would have it, so UCSD was supposed to be my first audition. And I was supposed to go to Rutgers in order to audition. But when I told them that I was going to be at IRTA in Chicago... which is University Resident Theater Association. They hold mass auditions every year for the graduate programs. But anyways, they were hosting in Chicago, all the auditions and Rutgers was going to be there. So Rutgers said, well, why don't we just meet you in Chicago? That way you don't have to come, you know, to Jersey if you're already going to be there. So Rutgers ended up being my first audition instead of my second one. Mm -hmm. So I was like, "Woo, okay, let's do it. I was pumped. I was ready to go. And, and and just curious, at this point, do your parents know you're auditioning for all these theater programs? Nobody knows anything. Okay. It's all, okay. It's all a secret. All it's just scandalous. something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. It was a secret from everybody. I told no one. Wow. So I auditioned. I got in on the spot. And the rest is history. Wow. And then you went home and told mom and dad? Or like, yeah, when, so when did you it break the a, news? <laughs> I waited until I got my acceptance letter. Right, exactly. That's smart. That is a smart strategy. I waited until I got my official acceptance letter because then I had to travel to Rutgers for the final assessment or callback or whatever. Yeah. But basically, Israel and Deborah, who was the head acting teacher at the time, told me, we've already accepted you. You got accepted on the spot. So the choice is yours if you want to be here. 
Wow. And um, of course I said yes, because it was Israel Hicks. And just even yeah. being there during those few days, I got to just follow him around and like go see all the shows and just see the choices that he was making for the future of the theater program and his goals for the theater at large. And I loved that my class was the largest and the first um, class of Black people. Like it wasn't all Black, but we had seven Black people, seven white people. And I don't think that's ever happened since in the history of Rutgers. So Remit, Serge was one of the students in her program. Yeah, Serge is my one of the seven, one of the seven Black people. The connection is yes. I, th- yeah. I It's so, what's so interesting is like with Minority parents, you really can't mess around with a lot, but messing around with education and your parents' expectations. I know. Right. <laughs> so I it's know. just like, I, man, I, part of me is like, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall, but I'm afraid to have been a fly on the wall. <laughs> so, yeah. So, anyway, so I go to the school, I, they tell me I'm in and I get my letter and then I tell my job first. <laughs> <laughs> so you still don't tell your parents. <laughs> I told my job because I loved them and they wanted me to stay. They offered me this brand new position and they were really trying to build me up. So that's why I always have like the utmost love for the graduate school of business at Pitt. But I told them they were very happy for me because education is education and I was getting a master's degree. And then I told my family. Uh huh. And no, they were very excited. First, they were shocked because they were like, What? You didn't tell us. <laughs> but then, man, they threw me the biggest going away party. They were so excited. They were like, We can't believe you did it. Like, you've always wanted to do this. We're so proud of you. Like, it was just, it was really beautiful. It was really beautiful. So they totally got on board. That's great. Happy yeah. ending. I it was, was I was expecting some explosive <laughs> threats know. of of disowning you or something, but oh my god, not at all. But you were smart because you you walked in with the acceptance letter. Yeah, I like, think that helped. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Any earlier they may have tried to convince you otherwise, but yeah, that definitely played funny. a part. But no, they've been like my biggest fan since, and my dad even like my dad wants to be my manager. To be perfectly honest, what? he's always been breakdowns. He's always he's like Denzel got my spot right. Denzel, I always wanted to be an actor. Denzel's the one who got my spot. He's so goofy. That's so cute. Yeah, and not that much time has passed since grad school, but you've done so many things in the artistic world and production and your current project America again is something that Roman and I have both stumbled upon and we just think it's so interesting what you're doing with that message can you talk a little bit about what inspired that and where where you're headed with that yeah. project yeah so America again was my response to the Black Lives Matter summer of 2020 basically mm-hmm. but for me, those issues, for all Black people, those issues have been brewing for such a long time. It just came to a head when these just ungodly images of a human being being murdered came to pass before the eyes of the world. And so all these issues of injustice in the workplace came out as well as within the criminal justice system. And so everybody's talking about their microaggressions and the things that happened. But this project stemmed from that. In 2018, I was actually I was actually fired on my last day. They fired me, which, okay. But wow. yeah, they fired me on my last day. It was a theater residency program at a middle school. And they gave me the assignment of, okay, we're going to basically take this poem by Langston Hughes, America Again, And we want you to devise a piece with the students, right? And so America Again is a poem. It basically talks about all the issues that are going on today, but it was written in 1926. And so it does talk about the president. It talks about the people. It talks about the land. It talks about climate. All these issues that are so pertinent, racism, poverty, classism, climate change, all these issues, right? And so... My daily prompts for the students were questions surrounding that and how it pertains to their daily life. And so at the end of the program, through their words, I put together a short play. 
but all of it was within the context, within the framework of the poem. And so the poem itself was interwoven in- It's a Langston Hughes poem, right? Right. Yeah, it's a Langston Hughes poem. So the poem itself, the words, the verses were all interwoven in there. And the theater company that I was working for, because obviously you have to send it in before the kids do it, but the kids knew what they were doing. And so I actually taught two classes, one in Spanish and one in English. And so everybody was doing the same thing, but obviously the class in Spanish, they were doing theirs in Spanish. And long story short, the class in Spanish, because their material was a little bit less political, (laughs) they allowed theirs to go on. And then because the other students who were predominantly Black, it was very vocal. But again, they're seventh and eighth graders, right? But they have real opinions about things that are affecting their lives, like police brutality in their neighborhood, like sure. the president and and even the Latino kids. They were talking about the president deporting their families, which is a very real issue for them, right? So the school told me, no, we're not doing this. We're not putting this up. The kids aren't even allowed to do it. Wow. And you're fired. Even though that work was created by the kids themselves, it wasn't like you told them. Exactly. Every single word was their words. It was their truth and they weren't Mm -hmm. allowed to express it. Yeah. So it was pretty devastating because I'm a very sensitive person and to quote Beyonce, I'm an artist and I'm sensitive about my shit, right? But yeah, it was very, I was fuming I was fuming because they worked so hard and I worked so hard and I felt like that was the whole point, right? The whole point of this project was to uplift their voices. Mm -hmm. The whole point of this Mm -hmm. residency was to uplift their voices and give these kids who are clearly the disenfranchised of the school some type of outlet and you just shut them down and me. Yeah. So it was pretty devastating, but I had another show to do literally like the next week. And so I just had to like shove it down and keep it moving. And then I was actually going to London immediately following that show. So it was just a lot of things, right? And so I I shoved it down, didn't think about it again until all of this happened. And I was like, I'm bringing this back. Because their voices need to be heard. This is exactly what we were talking about. We always talk about how it affects the criminal justice system, which it absolutely does. But what about these kids? What about the education system? The school to prison pipeline is a real thing. And this is exactly why. Because the kids' voices get shut down and then they turn to the very things that you're trying to keep them from. Because those things are speaking to them. Right. Those things are the only ones that are giving them a voice. So it was developed out of frustration, but more out of the desire to have these kids' voices be heard. And I sent the school the campaign and the teachers actually put together a fund and raised $2,000 for two graduating seniors. So it ended up being a very beautiful process and... It's all about the give back. It's about the give back and making sure that everybody's voices are heard and the children are the future. And it was unfair for the school and the theater program to do what they did. And I just feel like there's something misaligned when you have a mission to do good and then you choose to harm people. Yeah. Yeah. And I not doing anything can be just as harmful. This Mm -hmm. is putting some more fuel onto the fire, but it makes me question also if you the person leading this program, were of a different skin color, would there have been a different reaction? Because Mm -hmm. would it be seen as, oh, well, this person who is white, like if you were white, right? Right. Is trying to help others to be more woke. Like it'd be, like there's something about this one situation and granted I'm only hearing your side of it, but like that almost seems it's being seen in a very specific way. Well, it was seen in a very specific way. And I'm glad that you see it like that because that is exactly how I felt. There was a lot of tension. There was a lot of tension. You could feel it. It just felt very much like let's gang up on the black woman. 
And also because I don't look my age. So like at 33, I looked like I was 23. And so, and so I feel like that's definitely part of it too. They think like, who is this little girl who thinks she can tell me what to do? Well, let me tell you, I'm not no little girl, first of all. But there is this idea with black women with, and I don't know, you guys can tell me better. Like, do you get it too, Sharon? Like where people will be like, oh girl, oh yeah, little girl. I don't read, thankfully, I don't think I read 42. And so, yeah, I'll say things sometimes and people will be like, oh yeah, well, when when you get to my age and and sometimes I'm like, actually, I'm older than you. Right. Well, it's funny. It's like, even with the beard, it's like, I keep the beard to look old or to look menacing, but when I'm clean shaven, (laughs) I'm a kid. And I'm like, really? Yeah. Or I'm safe. I'm friendly without the beard. Yeah. I specific. I I had this one woman at work. She literally said she was going around saying, little girl, little girl. Wow. 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 I said, who do you think you're talking to? Yeah. That's yeah. Nuts. That's just wrong. Okay. But to turn it back to the real yeah. little girl, if we were to <laughs> go back in time to little Aaliyah at the time. Yeah. As known oh, as, yeah. right? What is what's advice you'd give to your younger self? If we were to turn back to those days in Ohio. Don't let the bastards get you down. <laughs> <laughs> and then little Aaliyah would go to her mom and dad say, this, this young lady just told me a yeah. bad word. Yeah. Like, mom, what does bastard mean? <laughs> no, I had such a bad mouth. I knew exactly what bastard meant. <laughs> that, is, that is my best kept secret. I had such a potty mouth. I would cuss all the time in elementary school. <laughs> I thought You're it was breaking the stereotypes thing. of the good Muslim girl. I oh know. <laughs> I thought it was so cool. <laughs> the funny thing is, like when we all learned how to say bad words, like, like we didn't actually know how to curse. We knew the no. words, and we were just using yeah. them so wrong. <laughs> right. I had. I must have been nine, nine or ten. It was my first time hearing bad words, and I was at my grandparents' house. My grandparents spoke. Chinese mainly and like understood a couple of choice words in English and I'm in their house and I know I can't curse at home but I'm like I'm gonna curse here because like they're not gonna they're just not gonna react the same way or or so I thought so I'm around the house and I'm singing shit and damn it are my favorite (laughs) words like just and my grandfather who again like to me anyway always spoke Chinese he literally says in English he's like stop what are you doing in English and I was like oh my god I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble and I got punished. <laughs> Did they give you a whooping? Did you guys I get whoopings? Not from grandma and grandpa, but I yes, I I my mother has broken a chopstick or two across my across mm. my bottom. Mm-hmm. I, I don't we had the dunda, which was a stick. Like I I don't know what would hurt more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Candy, it's funny, my daughter, oh, we d- we don't hit our kids, but Every once in a while, like I will throw. It's like you don't even know what my parents did to me. And she's like, <laughs> right? what, did, "What did Grandma right. and Grandpa?" And I was like, "I she can't has, see it, but oh, like, you're so lucky." It's not your, and uh, it's just not like a twenty twenty two thing. No, at all, no. at all. <laughs> Conversation for another day. We go on for hours. Exactly. <laughs> well, so Aaliyah, we were a little run, running up on time, but like, I don't know, Sharon. I think we've got some time for speed round. Do you think Ali is ready for speed round? I think Ali is ready for speed round. All right, let's do it. I'm ready for whatever. (laughs) What is something about you that folks don't expect other than your potty mouth? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. What don't... So, funny story. I used to suck my thumb until I was in eighth grade. Wow. Wow. Wow, that is a long time. It's a very long time. And my mom tried everything. You're going to pour pour hot sauce on it. And I just loved the hot sauce. So it was just like a thumb with hot sauce. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing worked until they said, you're going to get a gap. And I did have a gap, actually. I had a gap until I I just prayed the gap to close. And it did. I never the, got the braces. Gap just, really? The gap just closed? Look, it just closed. You, you have a very special relationship with God. I, he fixes your teeth. He sends you an Uber. <laughs> I like this. Yeah. What's a book, movie, or television show, or a play with characters that you relate to? Mm, so I recently finished reading Cicely Tyson, As I Am, or Just mm-hmm. As I Am. Maybe I'm getting it wrong. Just As I Am. And her entire life story from just early childhood, 
little kid to adulthood, I completely relate to. And I'm going to play her. I'm claiming it right now. I'm playing her in the story of her life. You heard it here first. This is going to (laughs) happen. Yep. What's your favorite mom dish? Ooh, I can't eat it anymore because I have a dairy allergy. But my mom actually had a bakery called Aaliyah's Fine Foods. And she made the best cheesecake. She still makes the best cheesecake in the world. I actually had it and I shouldn't have on my drive cross country. I was like, mom, can you make me a cheesecake? I just need cheesecake. So when I stopped in Texas, she made me one and I had a stomach ache until where, where did I land? The Grand Canyon. But oh, it man. was absolutely worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Every single ounce. It was Yum. delicious. Good cheesecake is definitely worth any any stomach cramps for sure. But she also makes a really good bean pie. She learned from the guy who originated the recipe. So if that's nice. any uh, yeah indication, it's delicious. What is your least favorite food? Hmm. Least favorite? I don't know that I have one. I'm, I'm a picky eater in that I am vegan. So... Well, I'm vegan-ish because I will have I, so because you'll have a cheesecake now right, and then. I'll have a cheesecake every right. now and again, but also I will have meat every once in a while. Don't tell anybody, but it's usually only once a year. On that's for Eid. the culture. It's for the culture. Right. It's for yeah. the culture. It's for eat. I can't turn down the lamb. I'm sorry. Right. It's a part of my cultural tradition. So <laughs> leave me alone with my lamb. If I want it, I'm going to eat it. But no, honestly, the prophet even said, peace and blessings be upon him, that you should only have me every 40 days. So mm. in that, I'm still emulating that lifestyle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there's nothing that if it gets served to you that you're like, no, I'm just not touching that. It's not my thing. Pineapples. I really? Pineapples. pineapples. Really? The truth comes no, out. No, actually, actually, oh no, that does remind me. So this is, a, it's not something... Well, I guess it is something that I hate. I don't like fruit salad. If all of my fruit is yeah. touching, yeah. I can't. Yeah. Fruit salad, right? Because like, so they're all good by themselves. Totally. Yes. Yeah. Why would you mix so, them up? Thank you. I can't. So, okay. That reminded me. Especially yeah, on like a hot salad. summer day at a Ugh. picnic. But yeah. even if it's cold, I just don't like them touching. Like, yeah. it, it doesn't make any sense to my brain. Eat the strawberries by that. themselves. Eat the pineapples by themselves. Right. Yeah. I get yeah. that. That was a great answer. It was it was a trick question because that's kind of racist that you don't like fruit salad. <laughs> what? <laughs> you don't like things mixing? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> no, never that. That ain't nah. me. Nah, nah. <laughs> Who is someone out there, Ali, that you would want to have a chat with on a podcast? Ooh, I have two answers to this question because I, I was thinking about this woman the other day that in – my days of working in Pittsburgh, she was just this strange character. I'm 22, 23, working in the restaurants, and this woman named Paula shows up one day, and she was just so mysterious, right? And I always wondered, like, who the heck is this woman? She was this tall, white girl with this long, long blonde hair that she would always wear in a ponytail pulled down, and it literally touched her butt. And she wouldn't. She was just the quietest woman, and I feel like Paula was somebody who was starting over in her life. And now looking at my life and looking at how I've started over and how I move in the world, it made me think about Paula. Paula the other day, and just how like, oh, she was going through a change. But I'm in my own world. I'm 20. I'm in college. I don't know. I'm just like judging this person in my own way. Like she's a weirdo, right? So yeah. Paula is somebody who I'd want to talk because I just want to know like. What was happening for you during that time? I don't know. She just popped in my head the other day. And then also, better answer, my fourth grade teacher, Mr. Sanders, he always, he was one of my biggest fans. I was a big writer in school. Mm -hmm. And he told me one day, he said, you're going to be a writer and don't ever quit. He wanted to read everything that I ever wrote. And he would keep all of my short stories. And yeah, I would want to interview Mr. Sanders, see what he's up to. I hope he's well. Yeah, you should find him. Even if it's not on a podcast. He sounds great. Okay. What does being a modern minority mean to you? Hmm. Being a modern minority means 
owning who you are, claiming your space, and not taking any ish from anybody because of that's it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not taking any ish from anybody. I love that. That's a perfect answer. Ali, thank you so, so much for spending time with us today. This has been so much fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.